my cardio work is done now. Carrying the pulpit. Uh, let's see. Micah chapter 5. Am I on there? Okay. Micah chapter 5. Does it sound like I'm on? Okay. All right. Uh, beginning with verse number 1. Go to Jonah and then Micah is the next book after Jonah. I'm sure that's helpful. We have been in the Minor Prophets during Advent as we uh, have have uh, seen the coming of Christ as it's been foretold and uh, predicted. And so in Micah chapter 5 today, we want to talk about hope from small beginnings. Micah chapter 5, verse number 1. I hope you'll follow along in Scripture or on uh, your device. It is uh, helpful for you to look at the text and see uh, what it's saying because that's uh, always I want to try to bring the points from Scripture and its truth. Micah chapter number 5, and the Scripture there says, Mobilize, marshal your troops. The enemy is laying siege to Jerusalem. With a rod they will strike the leader of Israel in the face. But you, O Bethlehem of Phratah, are only a small village in Judah, yet a ruler of Israel will come from you. Excuse me. One whose origins are from the distant past, or some translations say whose goings forth are from days of old, from everlasting. The people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the time when the woman in labor gives birth to her son. Then at last his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land, and he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed, for he will be highly honored all around the world, and he will be the source of our peace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the scripture and for its truth, and we pray that you will speak to us from it today and open our hearts to receive you and to Receive your word, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. As we've uh, seen in studying the minor prophets, we find the messages that they give are categor- uh, categorically difficult sermons that uh, were often unwelcomed by their hearers. So that's fun, you know, to stand up and preach things that people don't want to hear and often uh, rejected. But the prophet existed in two worlds, and it's one of the things that makes reading the minor prophets interesting is that we see that he had his own context in mind, that he was the experience of the current audience, but also that there was a glance forward to the fulfillment of God's uh, promises through two future generations. So when we read a text like this one, for example, that's what you find are there. There are two levels of uh, conversation happening. One is immediate. It's like reading their uh, newspaper. But the other one is hundreds and thousands of years into the distance, into the future. And so their ministry existed in the vivid world of their own experience. And also they bring to us a less clear future. At least it would have been less clear to them. When we read Micah, uh, we've talked about context for some of the other writers. This is the earliest of the minor prophets that we've read so far. Uh, It would have been in the 800s B.C. that he uh, ministered. 
And he's referenced by a contemporary of his, one of what we would call a major prophet, Jer- Jeremiah. Jeremiah refers to Micah. And the thing that's astounding to him is that the people uh, that Micah ministered to were obedient. And Jeremiah himself finds uh, it's like talking to a wall. You know, he shares a message and it never is internalized and results in change in his uh, audience. And so he mentions Micah to, by contrast in, his, in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 26. And so they existed in the time prior to the captivity of Israel by Assyria. And they were hearing warnings about their need to repent and turn to God. And yet they eventually end up in captivity. Uh, when you study his, the history of the nation of Israel, that you know that there was a time when the kingdom experienced basically it wasn't a civil war it was just a departure of the northern kingdom into calf worship and idolatry and it left judah in the south and benjamin to be the two faithful tribes so it was easy like when you studied church history or you studied the history of israel in uh, old testament new testament survey all of the kings in the northern kingdom were wicked people you didn't have to you know, memorize some list of ones that were wicked and ones that were uh, that followed the Lord. But they were all wicked. They all departed from uh, the way of their father David, and they all turned to idolatry. And so they all lived under this cloud of impending judgment. And so when you read, that's the tone that you get. Micah had a great concern for the social uh, realities of his day and the fact that the poor were. Uh, treated uh, horribly by those who were in power and he had a great concern for the just treatment of people and for righteousness and when you read the bible those are related concerns because you, you remember jesus was asked what are the two greatest commands and he said the first and greatest command is to love the lord your god with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength And he said, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So a person who experiences righteousness because they've come into a relationship with God through faith will also have a concern for human dignity, and they'll have a concern for other people. And so when we read a a prophet like Micah, what we see is that he's trying to say to us that the... the, uh, Jesus said, the law and the prophets hang on these two commands, to love God and also to love others. And so true religion means that we have a view to others that's empathetic, empathetic. It's one of the things that seems like it's often missing in our understanding of what it means to be Christ followers, is we forget that the second great commandment says you're to love others and your, your heart is to have a, a place for broken people and to express the good news of christ to to others when we look at this passage that's the big picture in the uh, minor prophet micah the focus of this passage that we're looking at today shows us that uh, some people and places will you know not be highly thought of bethlehem in their day it's in the text it says you bethlehem afraid of Though you're tiny among the nations, it says, yet out of you will come forth to me one 
whose goings forth are from everlasting. And we've said before, to be from everlasting means that you're the eternal God. The eternal God is going to be born in Bethlehem. And so they, they were tiny and not uh, well-known, a hick town, you know, we could say. And yet from them, uh, out of that obscurity, greatness was incubating in, in uh, Bethlehem. And God shows up in this obscure place to break through our human hopelessness and to bring hope into our situation. And so as we look at the text, these are some of the ways that we see that God uh, brings hope to us out of, their, out of that obscure little place, Bethlehem. The first idea we see in the passage is that God brings hope through correction. Well, that sounds like fun, right? He tells the king of Israel, he tells him, muster your forces, bring the troops together. But here's what's going to happen. You're, the king of Israel is going to get smacked in the face with a rod. So joy, you know, for the king of Israel, for the people. It's like the, in their immediate circumstances, there didn't appear to be any hope. Marshal your forces, bring them together. You're not going to prevail. That's what God says to him. I am in the middle of correcting you. He says it won't matter that you're bringing your, uh, your soldiers together. If you read Israel's history, and you know, I, th- I thought about that this morning, it wouldn't have mattered, I don't think, what group of people it was because people are people are people. You, know, you find people behaving the same way all the time everywhere. But for this group of people, they experienced an unusual provision of God's special care. To them, He took them and he made them a kingdom of priests. And he made them a testimony to the nations. And yet, again and again, what we see is God providing uh, uniquely for them, delivering them through the Red Sea, delivering them uh, through the wilderness, providing for them on the other side of the Jordan, a nation that he carved out a little uh, bit of geography along the Mediterranean for them to have a home place. And when they got there, they understood their assignment clearly, but they always, in a cyclical fashion, uh, rejected and rebelled against the God who had given them such a a special favor. They uh, had a subsequent experience of divine judgment. They reject God. They rebel against Him. They experience judgment in some fashion. When you read the Judges, you see, it's marauding uh, neighbors who come in and, and assault them. And each time, it's just like this text. God is saying, I'm using that marauding neighbor to discipline, to correct, to, to bring you into alignment. And so we see that would happen. Then what would happen? Well, they would repent. They would uh, turn back to God, and God would deliver them. And then what happened? The cycle begins again, again and again. We see that that was basically the pattern in their experience. And so during the time of Micah, when he wrote, things were not on an upswing. He pronounces judgment because he can see that nothing that they understand about God eventuates in good practices toward neighbors. And so uh, there's a part of Micah where it says, What does the Lord your God require of you, Micah 6, 8, but to do justly? to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. He gives you the, this is basically the um, thesis. Uh, The point that he's trying to get across to them is that 
uh, God expects your life to be like that toward other people, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly. God says, that's what I, I want my spirit to, to uh, the difference I want to make within you. And so, but that was their experience of, of uh, rebelling against God, of being punished, of uh, being delivered, and, and it starting again. So what they would do sometimes is like, what can we find as an alternative to repentance? They would look for an alternative to repentance. And they did that sometimes through trying to uh, make Egypt uh, a partner in uh, their uh, resisting Assyria. So God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to use Assyria to assault you and to correct you. And they say, here's what we'll do. We'll go find Egypt and bring them into this situation as a buffer between us and your correction. And so I, I find that interesting because it's what people are like a lot of times. We are looking for a way to make sense of life in a way that avoids having to order it under God. They're like, we hear what you're saying to us, but instead of correcting our heart toward you, we're going to go find some other way that doesn't involve us having to order our life underneath your rule. We sometimes reimagine God in a way that's not consistent with his revelation of himself in the scripture. That was what they did too. They had in their imagination a God that was a no God. You know, that, that they uh, fashioned a God. It wasn't always physical, but it was often a God that wasn't the biblical God in the way that he had revealed himself. And so this is what I find is true about people. We don't mind God as long as he doesn't interfere in our plans. You know, we don't mind God as long as he doesn't disrupt our lives. We don't mind God as, you know, long as he is a God that doesn't make us uncomfortable. Well, the problem is there is no God like that in the Bible. There's not a God in the Bible that's not going to interfere in your life, make you uncomfortable, isn't going to be a disruptive presence to our plans. And so, in Scripture, this is what we see about God, is that He shows up as Lord, as the ruler of our life, as the one who is saying to us, you should order your life this way. The psalm writer had the right perspective. You know, we think about hope as coming through uh, correction and it not being the preferred way. I'd rather not have you uh, discipline me or correct me. Those of you that are parents, uh, no, you have to figure out some way to correct your kids because there's an innate ability they have to go off course. You know, all of us that have raised children realize that you got to discover a technique. You know, whether it's spanking, which I guess is universally deemed inappropriate now, or timeout, or. You have to have some way of bringing them into adjustment. Why? Because you want them to be people that the world can deal with, right? At some point. So correction is a part of our understanding. The writer in Hebrews says, if you discipline your kids for a season, for their good, why would you resent the fact that God might bring correction into your own experience? And that's exactly what God will do. He'll bring correction into our experience because he hates us. No, because he wants us to be people who reflect him. And he, he created us to, to uh, reflect his holiness. The psalmist had the right perspective. Listen to what he says. He says, my suffering was good for me. My suffering was good for me. 
Is that how we think? Well, not typically. My suffering was good for me, for it taught me to pay attention to your decrees. He says, sometimes the way that hope comes to us is unfamiliar and uncomfortable because it will come through God's correction that leads to repentance, repentance which leads to life. And so sometimes misery is the gateway to healing. And we see in the passage that that's what God was up to with this group of people is that he was bringing healing to them through correction, through their misery. But also the passage shows us that God brings hope sometimes even through obscurity or in obscurity because we this is a famous passage it's one of the first places that I really learned how powerful the prophets were in helping us understand that God had a purpose that he was working throughout history uh, that when you open the Bible in the very beginning you see that there's a purpose that God had that was overarching throughout history and that was that he was going to bring Christ as the Savior and the answer and the solution for our sin problem. So sometimes hope comes through obscurity, like this in the passage where the, God chooses a small out-of-the-way uh, place. I don't know if you remember the group for him, but uh, they had a Christmas album in the long ago. And one of the songs says, uh, I'm not one to second guess what angels have to say, but this is such a strange way to save the world. No, this isn't the way I would have decided to save the world, to go to Nowhereville, to go to Hick, you know, Hickville, and to have the baby born there in an out-of-the-way place. But God works, we know, through weakness in Scripture. The Bible says that His grace is perfected in weakness. And I pondered this a lot this week, just thinking about that. Why would God come this way? Why would He show up in Bethlehem at that time? But it's, it's the way God was behaving. And Max Lucado, I remember reading years ago of his description of what was happening in Bethlehem. He talked about the Christ, the Messiah, this way. He said he looks like anything but a king he says his face is prunish and red his cry though strong and healthy is still the helpless and piercing cry of a baby and he is absolutely dependent on mary for his well-being he described it as majesty in the midst of the mundane holiness in the filth of sheep manure and sweat Divinity entering the world on the floor of a stable through the womb of a teenager and in the presence of a carpenter. That's the way God decided to do this thing. <laughs> he, he did it in obscurity in an out-of-the-way place with a, a poor family. He, did, he could have done it anyway, but he chose a poor family. Some theologians talk about God having a preferential option for the poor which is an idea if you carry it out too far, you know, it can become dangerous. But Mary, when she was given a poem, a song that is recorded in Luke's gospel, talked about the idea that God came to the poor. He came to the lower uh, class, the, those that were oppressed. And so when we see what God is doing, it's obvious that he chose to enter this uh, world through a poor family in a small town. 
Jesus later, when he grew up to be an adult, was tempted, and we find that recorded in several places, how he's taken up onto a mountain after he had fasted for 40 days and was hungry. The scripture says he, the tempter came, and he uh, lays out all these different things to Jesus, and he tried to tempt Jesus to dazzle people with tricks. If you would just jump off of the pinnacle of the temple, you know, the angels would catch you in midair. Everybody would be impressed by that and blown away. And if you'll just use gimmicks to accomplish your purposes, you know, if you do something flashy, then it'll catch everybody's attention. Why don't you do it that way? And you remember Jesus' reply was, it's written, it's written that you won't put the Lord to the test. And so Jesus declines to do the gimmicky thing. I, as I thought about that this, this week, you know, why does God, this is how I was reckoning with it, why does he woo instead of overwhelming? And, of course, all my uh, Facebook theologian friends show up with their own, you know, take on that, which is kind of what I, I was hoping for. <laughs> but why does God woo and not overwhelm? You know, and, and we can look at people in the Bible. He didn't exactly woo Saul, did he? He kind of knocked him off his horse or donkey or whatever he was on. Not him to his feet, for sure. It didn't seem like a wooing. But for most people, their experience is dissimilar from that. God's voice seemed a lot quieter in uh, their reckoning with him. I want to say that God is determined not to wow us. But I don't think that's exactly right. You know, to say he doesn't want to wow us. There's plenty around us that should wow us when we think about what God has done, you know, like this morning. I got up, got my cup of coffee, my uh, bowl of cereal, and I've got a hammock swing. It's one of my favorite places in the world to be. And sat out on the back porch in the hammock swing and listened to the rain and a little Christmas music and was looking at some of the trees and the way that they grow, and I'm like, when I just sit and think about nature and things like that, you can see that there is a intent involved it's not accidental that the way a, a tree grows it's like it branches out and this branch moves away from you know this other branch so that it can have foliage and there it's not interrupting the growth in that part of it and it's like God has done things in creation that should wow us so in some sense I think he is trying to blow us away if we have the receptors for that but it's true that most often in Scripture, I think, or in the experience of people, he woos, he woos, he draws. That's a Bible word, draws us, rather than overwhelming us. So God could have come to Manhattan in the 21st century. He could have, where there were 13 or 15 or however many million people. He could have done it that way, but he didn't do it that way. He went to an out-of-the-way place, Bethlehem. He could have uh, used skywriting in Manhattan. He could have shown up in Manhattan and written it in the sky. Hey, Messiah's here. You need to know this, but he didn't do that. Uh, it's a little puzzling to us, but here's what God did use. He, he used this little small town, this experience that's been related to us now over thousands of years, and among other things, he used testimonies testimonies eyewitness accounts hey i was there i saw this so it's interesting that that's a sustainable 
you know, it's a sustainable process. He still uses witnesses and testimonies. He uses your story, in other words, and my story. And I don't know. Yeah, I'm glad I'm not God. I'd mess it all up, I'm sure. But the way God did it was small, obscure, you know, not the way that, that we probably would do it ourselves. And yet it's been effective, and he's, he's, his story has been passed along, and, and the narrative and the truth about what God has been doing in the world. So we think about how God works in, with these small beginnings. The Scripture shows, too, that he brings hope through waiting, through waiting in the Scripture in the third verse. Because it talks about there, this is what God says to them, the people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the time when the woman in labor gives birth to her son. Then at last his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land. This is a perfect example of how God speaks on two levels. You know, on the, I don't know that this is necessarily a prediction about the birth of uh, the Messiah, and, uh, but I do think it's a uh, prediction about God's deliverance to these people in their time, in their context. But we, their application for us is definitely that there is a time of waiting, that we wait. One of the uh, songs I've enjoyed a lot in the Christmas season is by a writer named Sarah Groves, and it, it's called We Wait. I love it a lot. It's very simple. But she says, we wait for you this month of endless night. Prepare you room for making all things right. We wait. I don't know how pregnant women do it. I don't know how they do it. <laughs> it's like we're, everybody, probably most people know our daughter-in-law, her due date was yesterday. You know, she's waiting with a human being inside of her. And I think about this is the analogy that God chose to use to think about what it's like as we process restoration and forgiveness and all that he was doing for us is the he, he this idea of a, a pregnancy that that deliverance and salvation but they call a pregnant they say about a pregnant woman she is expecting right that's the phrase she's expecting a baby she's expecting and there when we think about what it you know is on the other side of a pregnancy there's life and hope and reproduction of this marvelous thing will will, uh, will come and take on what its own life with its own expectancy with its own independence that's a shock isn't it when you're a parent oh wow they have their own mind and heart you know that they they're uh, embodying now as a hopefully mature human being but that's what's involved the privilege that comes once they're born of choosing and acting and growing and God chooses that analogy of labor of woman in labor to talk about hope to talk about deliverance to talk about uh, redemption and I think about that the good news for us is that uh, the one we're waiting for has come and is coming again he's come already and he's coming again the scripture says He's already here, even if we feel like we're in a season of waiting. If you want to be a person of faith, I would say get used to paradox. Get used to paradox. The idea that sometimes the things that we hold on to don't, 
don't seem to resonate with our experience. That's what it means to be a person of faith, is that we're holding on to things that don't always, you know, when I say them out of my mouth, they don't always uh, sound true to me. The good news for us is, though, the one that we're waiting for has come already. He's made things right. When you look at the world around you, does it seem like the one who's come has already made things right? Well, of course not, if we're honest. But even when we uh, feel the world's not quite right, the Scripture shows us that he's already come and he's made things right. And so we get comfortable with that paradox that we long for something that has already happened and is happening in our waiting. So God brings hope, the Scripture shows, through our waiting. And then he brought, brought hope to us in this passage through Jesus. Look at the uh, scripture here again in verse number five. And he, he will be the source of our peace. He will stand in verse four to lead his flock with the Lord's strength and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And he'll be our peace. It's he, the scripture says in Psalm 100, who made us and not we ourselves. And we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. We're his flock, the Bible says. And this is uh, the second week in a row that we've seen God speaking to us in the Minor Prophets in the middle of our anxiety. That's the, you know, the context here is of daily worry. So Jesus says, don't be afraid, little flock. This is in the Gospel of Luke. Don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. In the context of our feeling overwhelmed and the minutiae of our daily stuff, it reminds us of the story of Mary and Martha in the New Testament and how that uh, Martha is concerned about many things, but Mary chooses the one thing that Jesus commends, and that is that she can uh, still herself and listen and give herself to God. And Jesus is saying to us, I think, through the passage where he says, don't be afraid, little flock, for it pleases God to give you the kingdom. The same thing that he would say, for example, in Matthew 6, where it says that uh, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. In other words, if we get the first thing right, the other things will come into focus as well. Jesus, I think, would say to us, give yourself to God and his purposes for you and rest in me. You're my flock. Do you think so little of me that I can't be trusted to care for you? Why do you still have so little faith? That's exactly what Jesus said to his own disciples. Why do you still have so little faith? He promises that we can be undisturbed. Sometimes the challenge is learning to live out of the identity that he says he's assigned to us. I can get focused on my little part of things and miss God in the vista, the big sweeping view. We talked about this a few weeks ago that uh, Mark Deborah, a pastor, said the Christian's joy is in the big picture. The Christian's joy is in the big picture. Not necessarily always in the minutia, and that's a helpful thing to understand. He'll be the source of our peace. If we're depending on anyone or anything else 
as our peace, we will end up disillusioned. He's the source of our peace. That's what the text says. Eugene Peterson wrote an introduction to this uh, book, to the book of Micah, in which he said, Left to ourselves, we turn God into an object, something we can deal with, something we can use to our benefit, whether that thing is a feeling or an idea or an image. And he says, prophets train us to respond to God's presence and voice. They train us to respond to God's presence and voice. And so that's what the prophet is doing for us. The best thing any one of us can do is have an accurate understanding of God according to his self-revelation. The opposite of that is idolatry. And it was the problem that was in this uh, passage originally that the prophet was addressing. The people had an incorrect understanding of who God was and what God was about. And so the opposite of uh, having a correct understanding of God is to have an idol. And the scripture says the truth is that God is real and personal and with us. The name given to him uh, being with us in scripture was Emmanuel, God with us, which is what the angels or what the uh, scripture said in the first century was uh, going to be the name. Name him Emmanuel, God with us. Greatness was in incubating, we see in this passage, in a little out-of-the-way uh, town in Bethlehem. God's purpose is to bring his life-giving power into the current experience that we have in life through Christ. And this simplest act, the act of yielding, the act of surrender in our life is also the most important one. And any of us can do that. Any of us can surrender. Any of us can yield and give up and give way to, to God. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so the where doesn't matter as much as the what, which is the calling out, the recognizing the need that we have. And that's the question uh, for us today is, have you trusted him as Savior, the one who came here in obscurity and the one who comes to bring hope and uh, to bring peace? Have you followed him through baptism as uh, a sign, an evidence that you're trusting him as the in an ultimate worshiping connection. That's the idea in Scripture, is that we surrender. Uh, first step of that surrender is to be baptized as a follower of Christ. And we're going to have a time of commitment this morning. It may be that as you listen, there that's the need in your life, is to take a first step in yielding yourself and obeying Him. And it, uh, let's pray. Father, I'm grateful today that you've given us this uh, this hope that came out of obscurity, that came out of a place of uh, unexpected 